Hello everyone and welcome to Autocrat. Just a little note, we have two kittens around, so if there's some purring noise or meow noise, it's normal. We have to watch them. Yes, I'm going to try and make sure that the noises don't make it into the audio, but you might hear some slight disturbances and if you do, that's why. Anyway, uh, we're back for episode 17 today and it's about Perseus. Ooh, very interesting. Do you know who Perseus is? I have an idea of who Perseus is and for reasons we'll get to in this episode, I have the impression of him as sort of a golden child who, even though there are problems, they are usually sorted very quickly with the one thing he has on hand. So, with this episode, we're taking our first steps into the Greek myth most people are probably the most familiar with. That makes sense. I think Perseus the Minotaur and Heracles, or Hercules as the Romans called him, are the only three that people really know about broadly. Exactly. So, we're going to start today with Perseus, who, if you didn't know, is the ancestor of Heracles. Oh, interesting. I assume we have a bit of a tangent on how he's related to him. Probably. Excellent. To do that, we've got to start with a man called Acrisius, the king of Argos. Okay. Do you know anything about Acrisius that you can tell me about? I don't know too much about him. I think he's Perseus's grandfather, and there's something to do with a prophecy, which I can only assume came from Gaia, as all prophecies do. Well, Acrisius asked an oracle how exactly he should go about getting sons. Okay, I mean, maybe Acrisius hadn't had the talk yet about how the birds and the bees works. Yeah, not everybody gets to talk about the birds and the bees. No. The oracle told him a grandson via his daughter would be his death. That's an almost entirely the opposite thing of what he wanted to hear. This oracle doesn't exactly know how to answer questions. And also, why does he start with that? Like, why not just tell him, you know, you need to find a woman and blah blah blah, bird and bees? Why immediately don't have one with your daughter? I mean, no, I think <laughs> what, what it means is I think he has a daughter already and the oracle just leads immediately with a prophecy about his death instead of about how he can get sons instead of daughters. But, I mean, I guess if you're about going to be killed, maybe lead with that if you're an oracle. If you didn't know that, he had previously wanted Danae to marry, which is his daughter. Okay. But after he heard that, that, that changed his mind. Okay. Yeah, I suppose a prophecy saying that your daughter's kids are going to kill you would change your mind about whether your daughter should have any kids. And did you know what he did as a response to this? Tell me. Well, he shut his daughter away underground. Okay, it's a drastic form of family planning, I suppose. But yeah, that's not the response you want. Very appropriate kind of response. Yeah. While underground, Danae falls pregnant. Okay, wow. This might have been by a mortal man called, called Proteus. Okay, so possibly a jailer who happened to see her once every few days, something like that. I mean, I'm assuming there are probably Danae Proteus fanfics out there. <laughs> but, and I'm sure this will surprise everyone, yes. it could also have been Zeus. Oh, wow, such a shock. That never would have occurred to me. <laughs> So if it had been Zeus, he would have come into the form of a golden shower which literally fell into her lap. Okay, it's not in the usual list of plays, I suppose, turning into a gold shower to woo someone, but hey, if it works, it works, I guess. I mean, we've, Zeus does do stranger things, or at least equally strange things, as we'll see with, for example, Helen of Troy, but hey. This son that was born from that un union, Yes. can you guess who it was? I think it might be Perseus. It is Perseus, called like this because he was beautiful, okay. also known as 
Eurymedon. It's also blonde, in case you wanted to know. I did want to know that. There does seem to be a thing of sources randomly listing people's hair colour for no reason. And as a fun fact, there is actually a King Perseus of Macedon who will appear much later in the story. Right, yes. I think, isn't he near the end of the Hellenistic Age? Otherwise known as when the Romans just squashed the Greeks completely. Exactly. Okay. But don't get those two confused, alright? No. Now... You're going to tell us about when Acrisius learned of his grandchild's existence. Okay, well, when Acrisius found out, he wouldn't take Danae's statement that Zeus was the father, which was perhaps just a convenient excuse, who knows, a bit like we've seen with accusations thrown at Samili. So he put mother and child in a box and threw it into the sea. He really has the thing about appropriate reaction. Yes, it also feels a bit like some movie villains in that he doesn't check the person's actually dead. He just does something that makes you assume they're dead and just walks away. There is actually a dialogue by a much later author, Lucian of Samosata, which has Doris and Thetis discussing this event with Thetis mourning how terrible it all is. Mother and child eventually arrived in a land called Seraphus, and someone called Dictus took them in. Now, Dictus had a brother called King Polydectes of Seraphus, because as far as I can tell, everyone is a king in Greek mythology. And let me guess, that person fell in love with Danae. As it happens, yes, he was completely smitten with Danae when Perseus was old enough to be a man, and he wanted her. However, he knew that Perseus stood in the way. How can Perseus stood in the way? It's just a song. Well, Perseus declared nobody would force themselves on Danae while he was there, and I assume that Polydectes, given this is ancient Greece, didn't particularly care about the consent aspect of the situation. Yeah, I bet. Polydectes therefore devised a plan. In essence, he told Perseus that, if he wanted to show people how courageous he was, he should go and kill the Gorgon Medusa. I've seen one version which says that, at a wedding feast, the other guests brought Polydectes' horses at his bidding. When he didn't get any from Perseus, which I assume is because he didn't tell him that he wanted horses, he asked him to bring him the Gorgon's head, and Perseus had previously said he wasn't afraid of the Gorgon, so this is essentially an elaborate way to get Perseus to go and get himself killed fighting a mythological monster. At this point, you should probably give us a bit of an introduction to who exactly Medusa is, because she appears a bit out of nowhere otherwise. Well, Gerber says that Medusa was a mortal woman who didn't like her homeland and asked Athena to bring her somewhere south and sunny. Okay. Do you think Athena responded to that request? I mean, given what I know about Medusa and how she ends up, I'm guessing it doesn't go well, but it does feel a bit like Athena's the travel agent of the ancient Greek world if she accepts it. So Athena didn't bring uh, Medusa where she wanted to be. Okay. So Medusa grew upset and vowed people wouldn't think Athena was pretty once they saw her, and for that reason, Medusa's request had been refused. Right, so she's giving her a sort of jealousy motive for refusing it. Exactly. Okay. This doesn't feel like a good idea from what I know about other myths like Arachne. Don't insult the gods' talents or appearance. It just doesn't end well. In response to that, Athena gave her snakes for hair and right. said that one look at her would petrify people. Okay, so turn people to stone. As the myth says, yes. Yeah, yikes. In Ovid's Metamorphosis, Medusa's origin story is a little different. How about you tell us about it? Yeah, well, there's only really one sentence here. Poseidon sleeps with her in Athena's temple, and Athena turns her into a gorgon because of it. Presumably this is because it's, well, a violation of temple sanctity for gods to be sleeping with mortals in it. We're leaving that in. It's so cute. Yes, Felix, Medusa's very scary. This was the origin story about a bit of Medusa. Yeah. 
But uh, let's go back to Athena for a bit and to Perseus, because we have something to tell you. Yes, we last left Perseus on his merry way to go and kill the Gorgon with some plan. He doesn't seem to have worked out what yet, or the text doesn't say. But at this point, Athena and Hermes help him out, and tell him to go to the Gorgon's sisters, who had an eye and a tooth between them. So there's three individuals who share an eye and a tooth, they'll be able to help him further. That sounds weird. Yeah, they pass it round, apparently. Good. Perseus got his hands on both the eye and the tooth when he went into their home, and said he would only give them back if he was told where certain nymphs were who had Hermes' winged sandals, Hades' cap, and a sack called the Kizabis. Do you remember Hades' cap from back in the day? It grants invisibility to whoever yeah. wears it. Well, it's making a cameo here again. Good. Hermes also gave him a sickle made of adamantine, presumably the same one Kronos used to castrate Uranos back in episode one. See, we're full of cameos and throwbacks this episode. We really are. However, in a different version of events, Gwerber says that Hades lent the helmet to Perseus, Hermes gave him his sandals, and Athena gave him the Aegis shield, which we talked about in episode 16. This would then mean that he picks them up before going to see the sisters. Then again, he might have found these items after they told him, well, you can use them, but they're located somewhere, we're not going to tell you where, but that's just my attempt to reconcile these two different narratives. This account says that the three items were in the Garden of the Hesperides, which we last talked about in the context of the Golden Apples during our astronomy-themed episodes, if you remember. I do. This account says that Perseus got the eye and the tooth because the three sisters couldn't see him due to the cap he's already wearing, and that he got them as they made their way around. But he could have done this as well, I suppose, without the cap of invisibility, because, well, these people have one eye between them and it's being handed round constantly. Eventually, however, he made his way to the cave of the Gorgons and found them asleep. Now, I say Gorgons plural because there's actually three of them. There's Medusa, who's mortal, as we discussed, as well as Steno and Uriel, who are not. Gorgons supposedly have dragon scales, tusks of boars, wings of gold, and their eyes could petrify people who looked into them. Like in Harry Potter. Yes, I suppose a little mm. bit like in Harry Potter. So, their gaze can turn people to stone, right? Well, Perseus got round this by looking at a reflection of them in his bronze shield, on the advice of Athena. He cut off Medusa's head, and from her neck sprang Pegasus and Chryseor, Medusa's children by Poseidon. Does at least one of these names sound familiar to you? Pegasus. Yes, th that is the Pegasus, the winged horse. Perseus then went to leave. However, the other two Gorgons woke up, but they couldn't see him because of Hades' cap of invisibility. So he then made his way to Ethiopia. So, are you starting to see where this idea comes from that I had of Perseus just being a golden boy, where problems are immediately sorted as soon as they crop up? A little bit. Yes. So far, he's been told to do one thing, and he's done it immediately. Good. So, do you want to take up the story from when he arrived in Ethiopia? Sure. In Ethiopia, Cephas was king. Okay, so we've got a King Cepheus of Ethiopia. We do. Cepheus has a wife named Cassiopeia, which oh. I love the name of, yeah. who said about herself that she was prettier than the Nereids. Okay, again, please stop doing this. Boasting in front of the Greek gods just really doesn't end well. The Nereids were upset, and so was Poseidon. Yeah, not entirely sure why, but okay. I don't know, does Poseidon believe his wife or daughter or whatever is more beautiful than her? I Who didn't does? think to look this up. Maybe his wife is an Ariad. I'm not sure anymore. I'd have to confirm that. But in any case, solidarity is important. Yes. 
So he reacted in a very proportionate way. Yes, good. And he sent a sea monster to torment them. As is only reasonable. It is, it yes. is. I've lost count of the number of times that I've sent a sea monster to deal with someone after they make a completely flippant remark. Exactly. An individual called Ammon had said that if their daughter Andromeda was given to the monster, their troubles would stop. Okay, standard fantasy trope, sure. Also, note the name Andromeda. Yeah, like the constellation. Yeah, and the galaxy. And Cassiopeia, like the constellation. Yeah, I think all three of them actually are star-related things. I think Cepheus is a constellation as well. Cassius' people made him go through with it, and he was bound to a rock for the monster to find. Okay. That's mean. So I assume at this point Perseus shows up, flying through the sky on his winged sandals. Perseus arrives, yes. and he falls in love with her at first sight. Okay, as you do. Whenever you see someone chained to a rock by the coastline, you think, is this love? So he makes a deal. Yep. If he manages to kill the monster and rescue Andromeda, he could marry her. Okay, I'm assuming that like all Greek myths, she was given absolutely no say in this. Probably not. Cepheus agreed, and now you're going to tell us about how it went. Yes, so on to the fight with the sea monster. Perseus wounds it in the shoulder and it thrashes about. He then has to dodge the monster, wounding it where he could, so you can just imagine him hovering around like the world's most painful hummingbird at this point. However, its wings, which it apparently has, were too heavy for it to fly. Near the end of the fight, Perseus landed on a rock once he thought his sandals couldn't hold him anymore due to moisture, so I'm assuming the wings can't get damp. Presumably that's in the instruction manual, but hey, we're in the middle of a fight, no time to read them. Perseus stabbed the monster in the guts several times, and after the battle, Perseus washed his hands in the ocean and put Medusa's head on some seaweed. I'm not entirely sure why he's still carrying that throughout the whole fight, that just seems heavy. Or indeed, why he didn't use it. Yeah. We know we've got a head which can turn things to stone, why didn't you use it on that monster? It seems very odd. Maybe he wanted to prove himself, I don't know. Anyway... This is little token. After a fight, he keeps a token. Yeah, a very heavy head-shaped token that is also relevant to the purposes of ecology, as it turns out, because when Medusa's head landed on the seaweed, the seaweed took on the properties of Medusa's blood and became coral. Ah. So, Perseus has successfully killed the monster, and we again get a dialogue by Lucian of Samosata at this point between Triton and the Nereids about the killing of the sea monster by Perseus. So, if you believe Lucian, his fame is spreading amongst the gods. You would think onto his prize of claiming Andromeda, wouldn't you? You would think. However, there is an obstacle in the form of Cepheus' brother Phineas, the man who Andromeda had originally been promised to. So, her uncle? Yes, her uncle. So, what does he do? Phineas sets up a plot against Perseus, but Perseus learns of it and petrifies the conspirators with Medusa's head. So he did use it, indeed. Yes, here we start to see the theme developing, which I like to call Perseus using Medusa's head to immediately solve problems. Perseus then travelled back to Seraphus. Do you remember where Dictes, Polydectes, and his mother are? Yeah. However, while he was flying over Libya, drops of blood fell to the ground and became highly venomous snakes. And Ovid says that it's because of this blood that Libya is filled with snakes to this day. The next part of our saga is when he's flying back to Greece with the head of Medusa. Do you want to tell us a bit more about it? Of course. When night fell, Perseus rested in the land of Atlas, which had golden trees and golden apples and lots of frogs. Okay, so the perfect environment. Exactly. Yeah. He asked Atlas for a place to spend the night. He'd been tossed back and forth by the wind and didn't trust himself to fly in the night. Okay. 
Atlas knew who he was and was afraid because he had heard of a son of Zeus who would steal his golden apples. Okay, so that's a bit of foreshadowing to our 12 tasks of Heracles there. So he's got the idea right that there is a son of Zeus coming, he just hasn't got it right which one it is. Not yet. Okay. To prepare for that, he had already put a dragon in the garden and high walls around it, and he drove away all intruders as a policy. Okay. He told Perseus to get lost and try to drive him away. Right. Perseus resorted, again, to using the Gorgon's eyes. Ah yes, immediately solved the problem using the one token you have from your adventures. Atlas was petrified and turned into a mountain. That seems to be a theme as well. Yeah. His hairs became forests. Ridges of mountains were formed from his shoulders and hands. His bones became stone. Okay. The Atlas mountains are sought to hold up the sky just as Atlas did. Okay, so Atlas turns into the Atlas Mountains, the ones in northern Africa around Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Exactly. Okay, that's fun. So again, origin story. Anyway, on to his destination. So he arrived in Seraphus, but found that Danae and Dictis had fled into the temples to hide from Polydectes' unspecified malice. Perseus now also turned Polydectes and his courtiers to stone. That's now three times he's done this. Is it me or is he doing it a lot? That seems three times too many. Dictis was made king of the region, and the gods were given their stuff back, so the sandals are being returned, they weren't a gift, they were a loan, please give them back now. Athena was gifted the head of Medusa, and she put it in the middle of her shield. Now, if this shield is the Aegis, it means that all of this happened before the palace incident we talked about last time. Presumably the head of Medusa is what scared Pallas and ended up with her being hit by Athena. Anyway, Perseus, Danae, and Andromeda went to Argos to see Acrisius. Maybe he wanted to see the face of the man who'd caused him trouble in his youth? I don't know what would prompt you to go back there. Now, Acrisius found out who was coming, put two and two together, and ran away. At this point, we turn to the king of Larissa, who's called Teutamides. Teutamides was hosting tournaments in honour of his late father, and Perseus joined in. So sort of a funerary Olympic Games, if you like. He took part in the pentathlon, and specifically in something called quoit throwing. Now, a quoit is a flat circle made of metal slash stone, which people throw to show off how skilled or strong they are. During the course of the game, he hit his grandfather on the foot, and Acrisius immediately died. That seems very strange as a place to be hit with immediate death resulting. Very true. Perseus buried him outside the city when he learnt of the death, which now told him that the prophecy had in fact come true. As they usually do. They usually do. Stop trying to run from them. It just ends up with it happening somewhere else. He felt too much shame to claim his royal inheritance in the form of Argos, so he swapped Argos for Tyrins with someone called Megapenthes, son of Proetus. This man is therefore maybe also his half-brother, depending on who you believe his father was. Let's turn to the last part of our story here, because Perseus has a family with Andromeda. Awesome. He has a son, Perseus, who was born while they were still in Ethiopia, and left behind with his grandfather, Cepheus. Okay, this doesn't seem very imaginative as a name. This is the closest he could get to just Perseus Jr. <laughs> and apparently the Persian kings have Perseus as an ancestor. Did okay. you know that? I did. I heard that before, but I didn't really remember it. So we have some other famous people now connected to the Greek myths. One version says that Ecate might be a daughter of Perseus or Perseus, if I understand Apollonius of Rhodes correctly. Okay, seems a bit strange, a Greek goddess descending from Perseus, but I suppose we've had similar things before. 
While in Mycenae, he had Alcaeus, Telenellus, Helen, called Aeolus by Scoliast on Apollonius, okay. Mestor and Electiron, as well as a daughter called Gorgophon. Okay, this doesn't seem unrelated to Gorgon and seems a strange thing to call her. It seems funny. <laughs> Maybe that name just means I beat the Gorgons, everybody sit down now. But listen to his family for a moment. Okay, so to his descendants, you mean? Yeah, tell Perfect. us about it. Well, Alcaeus married a daughter of Pelops, according to one version, and had Amphitryon and Anaxo, so a son and a daughter, respectively. Mestor, another son of Perseus, had Hippothoe by Pelops' daughter Lysidice. Hippothoe would be abducted by Poseidon and have a son called Taphius, who settled the island of Taphos. Mm-hmm. Taphius' son was Terelaeus, who was made immortal by his grandfather Poseidon by putting a gold hair into his head. Seems a strange way to grant immortality, but there you go. What's fun for Hellenistic audiences is that Antiochus was the name of one of the sons of Terelaeus, so we've got a much later Greek name showing up in Greek mythology. Now, going back up the tree for a moment, Electiron, one of the other sons of Perseus, married his niece Anaxo. At this point, he's just continuing family or Greek mythology tradition. Their daughter was Alcmene, and their sons were frankly too many to list. They turned up in Apollodorus, there were just loads of them, it wasn't worth going into for just one name drop. He also had an illegitimate son after all his other children by Anaxo were born. Thelenus, another son of Perseus, had Alcyone, Medusa, which seems in poor taste yeah, as a name. Yeah, it seems a bit like, why? Why would you do that? <sighs> yeah, and Eurystheus by Pelops' daughter Nisippe. I only mention these because Eurystheus is relevant to the story of Heracles whenever we get to him. Alright. There's some intrigue within the family which we can get into some other time, but isn't directly relevant here, but as far as I can tell might be relevant to Heracles' story. Now, Amphitryon was married to Alcmene, so again, we've got an uncle-niece marriage going on here, but he would be the stepfather of a very famous individual, Heracles. Heracles was the son of Alcmene and Zeus. Yes, again, Zeus being the father of someone. This also means, if you're looking for a strange family tree, that Perseus is simultaneously the great-grandfather and the half-brother of Heracles. Why not? Yeah, why not? That sums it up quite well. Now, you might think, can we put Perseus in our chronology that we've started building up? I don't know, can we? Well, this is a little bit more difficult. This is because the account that has Heracles doesn't contain a full date, so the Perian Stealer, which we mentioned before, has a bit of a date when it comes to Heracles 1000 and something, but the rest's been lost. However, the events around him are said as happening in 1062 and 1031 of the Counting Down timeline we discussed in episode 15. Using our standard that Alexander the Great's birth in 356 BCE happened in 91 of whenever this timeline refers to, this gives us a date range for Heracles sometime between 1327 and 1296 BCE. So that's Heracles nailed down, however that's him rather than Perseus. However, Perseus is the great-grandfather of Heracles, and several sources say that a generation is give or take 30 years, so we can just work backwards. This gives us a, admittedly fictional and very hand-wavy date range, of between 1417 and 1366 BCE for when Perseus was around, with an average of about 1391 BCE. So, if you want a completely arbitrary and fictional date to assign to Perseus, there you go, that's the one we're going with. Perfect. Okay, so that almost brings us to the end of today's episode, however I do have some distressing news to report, actually. Oh, 
what's happening? Well, there's been a break-in at the Autocrat Palace. There has been? Well, the wall's been breached, Kerberos has been bought off with some meat, and I don't even want to talk about what happened to the terracotta army we had outside. Sounds like someone's on the quest? Yeah, it's very strange, actually. They didn't take anything from the vaults, but there's this recording that was left in the middle of the floor. I mean, I'll play the clip, because that seems to be what they want, but, well, enjoy. We are Quest for Power, and for some reason, we took it upon ourselves to rank all the European monarchs from the crumbling remains of Rome to the trenches of World War I. We are your devastators of mediocre lords. I'm Scott. And I'm Michael. And I hope you have an appetite for brutal bloodbaths, shocking betrayals, and horrible decisions. Because there is plenty of it, and a whole lot more. Knowledge is power, so join us in our quest for power. So there we go. Feel free to check out our friends and collaborators quest for power on wherever their podcast can be found. And that actually brings us to the end of today's episode now. So thank you all very much for listening. Thank you and have a good week, everyone. Yeah, have a great week. Was Perseus what you were expecting? Not really, actually. Because <laughs> you told me we were going to be about Medusa, but I didn't think it was But Medusa would be like a paragraph. No, Medusa barely features in the story. Okay, we're having a cameo from the autocats now. You're the cat.